Olive Branch podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anwar Mahajni. In this podcast, I interview activists with ties to Israel and Palestine who identify as peace activists and are working on ending Israeli occupation of the Palestinian territories. Today, I, um, I have the honor and the privilege to interview Aziz Abu Sarat. Aziz, uh, thank you for agreeing to be interviewed uh, for this podcast. Um, Aziz is a Palestinian peace activist, uh, a National Geographic explorer, cultural educator, author, co-founder of Majdi Tours, and also a TED fellow. Uh, you guys should check out his TED talk um, and then, you know, check out his writing and work. Um, Aziz, uh, I was wondering if you could tell us more about your background, who you are, your work, and how kind of your background is tied to your work and, and um, the, 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 the projects that you're working on. Right. Well, thank you so much for hosting me today and uh, happy to be talking with you about, uh, about Palestine, about Israel, and about how we, can, uh, how we can shift things and change that paradigm. So you started by introducing me as a peace activist, but that's not how I grew up. Um, growing up in Jerusalem, I was totally on the other side. And that's because just, you know, reality in Jerusalem, the things I grew up seeing have, uh, have shaped a lot of what I believed. Uh, I never really met any Israelis, any Jews who were not soldiers until, you know, I was or who treated me, let's say, as, as an equal, as a human being, until I was 18 years old. Most of my interaction was with soldiers, and they were not positive interactions. I think one of my earliest memories was uh, going home terrified, telling my mom I'm quitting schools when I was eight years old because uh, we had tear gas fired at us, and I was suffocating. And I told my mom, I'm not going back to school, I'm quitting. And, you know, like any mother, she's like, well, you're eight years old, you can't quit school. This is not possible. And I told her, I'm not going to school. And she had to reason with me. And one of the things I did since then, you know, for many years after, I would take every morning with me an onion to school. And, you know, you, you know why an onion, because it helps you not suffocate when there's tear gas you put it close to your nose and that was the most important item I took with me to school more important than my homework more important than my books more important than my lunch it was is the onion all right uh, so so that's how I grew up my brother was arrested and uh, killed by being beaten up tortured in Israeli prison on suspicion of throwing rocks um, he he died soon after he was released from jail when they realized he's on the deathbed. Um, so that also has made me very angry. And I grew up, uh, I grew up very much on the side of revenge and um, feeling like if you kill my brother, then I need to do uh, something about it. Um, I didn't believe in any resolution. I was motivated. You know, I thought I was motivated by justice, but thinking about it now, I definitely was more motivated by revenge. And that's how my life went until I was 18 years old. I became very active politically, mobilizing, organizing, all of that um, until I was 18. And I had a big change happening to me when I was 18 when I went to study Hebrew in an ulpan, which is where Jewish immigrants to Israel go to study Hebrew. 
And I was very lucky because my teacher in that class was, um, you know, I had different classes and the teachers, some of them were awful um, and treated me awful, made racist comments even. But my luck was the first teacher I met was an amazing human being. And from day one, I remember her, I was the only Palestinian in the classroom and I remember her welcoming me with such an amazing um, smile and speaking to me in the few words in Arabic she knew and trying to make me feel welcomed in the classroom. She kind of felt my hesitation, feeling that nobody wants me to be there. Um, and and that was my first step for my peace activism. And uh, ever since my work is really focused on how do you break, break down the walls that divide people? How do we overcome hatred? How do we overcome violence? How do we come to justice and not revenge? Um, and it's, it's a hard work. And I've tried to do it in all kinds of ways, from media to travel to every way possible. And then eventually I ended up doing it in other countries as well, but probably we're not going to discuss much of that. So that's a little bit of the background and I can go more into my peace building work if, if you want me to. Yeah, that would be great. But um, before I, I'm actually curious, why did you choose to take OPAN? It's a very specific you know, program for um, usually Jewish immigrants who are coming to Israel. Well, when, so it was mandatory to learn Hebrew in my high school, but I was so anti anything that has to do with Israel that I refused to learn it at all in high school. And then I realized after I finished high school that I made a big mistake because if you don't speak Hebrew, your education, your work, your life is really not going to be the same. You don't have opportunities. And uh, I... I found myself stuck and I started looking at where is the best place to learn Hebrew and Ulpan is, is the best place. So my goal was I'm going to go there, learn the language, but I'm not going to talk to anyone, which as you, you can tell, that's a ridiculous plan because you can't learn a language without talking to people. And I'm very now thinking about it. I'm very grateful that I ended up in that class because my life would have turned out probably so different if I didn't go to that Hebrew class. Yeah, it's amazing how contacts and kind of humanity <laughs> can change perspectives. Um, I actually, maybe we could tie this to, that, to this question. So what is peace activism? Like, what does it mean to you? And how do you tie your, tie your work to your definition of peace activism? Oh, that's a... It's hard to always explain it because for me, it's, I guess, what, what I mentioned earlier. It's about bringing down barriers and divisions of hate, of anger, of revenge, of ignorance that divide us and trying to build bridges that make people listen, understand, engage with each other. Mm -hmm. uh, I think of it as not... You know, we, we often, too often divide the world into us versus them. And I don't see the world anymore as us, for example, in this case, as us Palestinians, them Israeli Jews. I see it as us, those of us Israelis and Palestinians who believe in peace and them as those who don't yet. 
And so I see it as an ongoing process. But probably my favorite actually, um, my favorite understanding of it comes from Greek. The Greek word for peace is agape, uh, is uh, shalom, peace. But I like one, one uh, scripture, actually it's in the Bible. Um, and by the way, I grew up in a Muslim family, but I'm always intrigued by what's different, what's the other, and then to take it on and to understand it and, and live it. And so I remember reading that, uh, um, that Greek uh, word uh, to love your enemies and uh, the word agape used for love meant to entertain and to welcome in and it's a verb and i really like that definition of peace activism is to reach out to welcome in to engage to 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 be radical in that sense even with your enemies but in the same time i believe it is working for justice and that's often the the contrast and the fight you have when you are a peace activist is to not become wishy-washy on issues of justice, but to also continue to do that reach out and that engagement uh, with, uh, with the other, with the enemy. Um, and I think that's an interesting point, justice and kind of being able to reach out to the other, right? Um, and how do you think, how can you kind of, um, you know, work towards justice while trying to also navigate um, kind of reaching out to the other, because reaching out to the other really requires a lot of work, right? On your side, you face challenges, resistance, and all of that. So how do you make kind of compromise or try to um, uh, kind of still maintain working on justice and naming things the way they are and pointing out like power structures and dynamics mm -hmm. at the same time allowing room for discord for conversations right because a lot of people feel alienated like as soon for instance as soon as you say well israel's occupation a lot of jewish israelis will even any like pro-israeli right will just um you know shut their mind or not talk to you or already start responding right, right. So how, how do we do that um and i try to talk to my students about this in the class right especially in the context you're in the US right now, I'm in the US right now. And one of the things I'm trying to navigate is the rise of anti-Semitism, right? Mm -hmm. And yep. pointing out that critiquing Israel is not related, you know, like you feel like you're constantly on the defense, but also you right. don't want to kind of, it's just delicate balance to strike in the context of the United States, at least from my teaching in the classroom, right? Um, with a group of Catholic, mainly white Catholic conservative students. Yeah, no, you you are right. And it is <laughs> that for me, my business partner, so I own a travel company, and my business partner is Jewish, which is not very common of Palestinians and Jews doing businesses together. We have Israeli and Palestinian employees working for us. We have people from other nationalities and ethnicities and so on also working for us. And when the issue of anti-Semitism comes up, to me, it's, it's interesting because I'm like, I'm surrounded by literally Jews all the time. There is no day that that passes without talking to my business partner like 20 times, who to me is like my brother. Um, we, we are very close friends. We've worked together in conflict resolution, multiple countries around the world, started this business together. 
and really never see each other in those eyes of Arab and a Jew, um, see each other as, as friends, as family, as a human beings. Um, so it, it is, I think, asking ourselves also always what's the motivation of what I do is very important. So the way I try to do my work is one, I recognize not everybody is in the same place. And I recognize that I cannot try to push for transformation to happen in a meeting. Uh, if I meet somebody who knows nothing about Palestinians, or if I meet somebody who knows nothing about Jews, there's no chance I'm going to be able to have this conversation that will make them completely change in an hour. This is, I think, it's arrogance and it's unrealistic. And I feel too often those conversations are reaching out. We want to change everything in one minute, and that just doesn't happen. But my end goal always of engagement is to find things we can do together to change reality on the ground, not only to have conversation and that's it. And that could happen different ways. It's not even always necessarily political as some people might not want to go into heavy political stuff, but like equality. Um, you know, how much do Palestinians get paid versus Israelis in a job? It's, it's a question I had to deal with when I started my company. That's an issue of justice. Palestinians usually get the crappier jobs. They get paid much less. And when we started our company, that was a question we had to ask ourselves. Are we willing to, to be like many others who, who do that? And, you know, creating a paradigm where Israelis and Palestinians are equal in a workplace is not always common. Definitely not in Jerusalem. I, I know less about maybe Emel uh, Fahim or the Galilee region, the Triangle region, but in Jerusalem, it's not equal at all. To the point that when my Israeli colleagues introduce me sometimes as their boss to their friends, if we out for uh, hanging out together, you can see the shock in their faces. It's like, how could an Arab be your boss? This is not realistic i've never heard that before like people would say that as i'm standing there so you work for justice through different ways sometimes it is by mobilizing sometimes it is by protesting together israelis and palestinians but some people are not there yet so you start where they are and you try to push for incremental change less violence incremental change education learning engaging and you still might get people who they can learn everything and say you know what, I'm not interested. And that happens. Yes, that's true. Um, I like this strategy, but you know, I know people who are, okay, so let me frame it this way. I think having people who are um, less willing to compromise <laughs> is important on the Palestinian issue, like the terminology, uh, the cause itself, because they are pushing for a certain discourse, but I think we also need more people who are willing to be in the middle and well, being in the middle meaning reaching out, not giving up right. what justice is and what equality is and what should, like what a sustainable, peaceful resolution should look like. Mm -hmm. uh, I think they both are important, um, but I find that people who do try to reach out sometimes are acute, you know, sometimes face challenges both from their own community and from outside. And I was wondering if you faced issues with, you know, kind of your work and reaching out. Um, did that 
influence your personal relationships, your kind of standing in the community, or did it um, instigate certain conversations um, yeah. about Absolutely. the work? Absolutely. <laughs> uh, look, when you do this kind of work, some people will see you as selling out, um, selling out to Israelis because I talk about peace. Israelis might see me as a radical because I talk about justice. And so you end up getting it from both sides. I'll tell you on the business aspect, some people will not work with us because my business partner is Jewish. And some people will not work with us because I'm a Palestinian and I've had to deal with that again and again and again. And it's it's a reality. But when, when I tried to run for mayor of Jerusalem, and this was one of those steps toward uh, bringing issues of Jerusalem to to Israelis' knowledge first, to internationals, make it on the map again, as no one was doing that. There are a lot of people who are angry at me who said you are promoting normalization. Normalization, which is a term Palestinians use to say you're normalizing relationship with Israel as an occupier. Like, it's exactly the opposite. I was running on a platform that is highlighting the injustices that happening in Jerusalem, what's happening in Sheikh Jarrah, the house, the militias, the fact that a Palestinian kid receives one-tenth of a budget of an Israeli Jewish kid in a Palestinian school in East Jerusalem, even though we pay equal taxes. I was highlighting all these things. But what I was saying, we need to fight. We can't just sit and complain. We need to do something about it. And if it means running for office, that means running for office. And maybe it's not the best strategy, then we change. We try something else. But you can't only complain. You need to try to do things that makes change. Complaining doesn't make a change. I, I like tweeting, but tweeting doesn't make change. It is actually making facts also on the ground, creating realities on the ground. Uh, and, and that's what what made the whole Sheikh Jarrah thing recently in Jerusalem uh, become a big deal of the families who are being forced uh, out of their homes is because they were making change on the ground for, you know, for the first time in, in, in a long, long time, maybe in 10 years, People were finally coming, protesting, staying there, uh, eating iftar there. I, I was there a few weeks ago, and it was amazing to see more and more people starting to say, okay, we can't just complain. We need to be underground doing something. So some will accuse, still will accuse me of uh, normalization. Yeah, I have some friends who are, who are angry. Um, most of my closer friends didn't. Um, at least the now close friends. When when I went to Ulpan and I started hanging out with Israelis, people were, you know, friends were saying I'm naive, I don't understand because I was very politically active with Fatah before. So the people I was hanging with were politically not aligned with what I was doing at that point. Um, my family were terrified. My brother, as I say, was killed. So my mom thought, Every Israeli I was talking to is going to find a way to throw me in jail. They, you know, it comes out of fear. But slowly, some of these, like my family, have come around and understood that what I'm doing isn't normalizing. It's actually making a positive change in, in my society. Um, and s some friends have chosen to not be as close friends for me with me anymore. And that's that's their choice but i gained also so many other friends 
um, people like Ramil Hanan, who is one of my dearest friends, uh, Israeli Jew, who his daughter was killed by a Palestinian suicide bomber, and yet is one of the most hardcore advocates for Palestinians' rights. Who, if I, you know, every time, and unfortunately it happens every now and then, I get detained by the Israeli police for usually no reason. Rami is my first phone call. And he will show up and, you know, sometimes bring a lawyer and come and argue it with the police and get me out. And so you you lose some friends, you gain some friends. And that's why I said I don't see it anymore as us versus them, as Palestinians versus Israelis. To me, Rami is on my exactly on my same side, wanting justice, wanting peace for Palestinians, for Israelis. Um, we, we don't really see things differently. Mm-hmm. Um, which makes me think of one time a friend told me that, you know, she's a pessimist. She said people don't change. But that made me think that we all Palestinians and Jewish Israelis, um, we are all under same systems and structures that are brainwashing us constantly, right? Like I was thinking myself going through the same educational system, same background as a Jewish kid. And what kind of perception would I have about Palestinians and the conflict? Um, and I was thinking these structures are the ones that we need to challenge and it's not people, right? Because these structures are things that are causing the reproduct or they're reproducing narratives, false narratives about the other um, and they should be the target. So I don't know what your thoughts on that. Can you repeat the last, uh, the last sentence? I lost you for a second. Oh, so it's like kind of the structures themselves, right? So right. I think that what, what our target should be our structures rather than individuals. And Jewish allies are very important uh, in order for us to actually, again, I use sustainable a lot because I don't just want peace. I want something that will last Mm -hmm. is equitable peace, right? Inclusive peace. And you do need Jewish allies in order to achieve that, um, that peace. But I think the target should be institutions themselves because they are brainwashing Jews and Arabs. Yeah. Uh, about what's going on. Yeah, yeah, you, you're absolutely right. But to respond first to your friend who said people don't change, one, I'm an example, people do change. Two, there's really a close friend of mine named Kobe, Kobe Skolnick. He just wrote a, a great article. He's writing multiple parts. He used to be a settler, extreme right wing, and now he's exactly on the opposite side of that. Um, and an amazing, amazing guy who did change. And, you know, he've, he's been to my house. I've spent nights in his house. Same, he, he's now in New York. Uh, when I'm in New York, that's where I go to, to stay. And so people do change. And I can give many examples of people who did and do change all the time. So let's not give up on, on people. Um, and maybe because I grew up, and I saw that change in myself, mm-hmm. I really have a strong faith in people and in the ability of people changing. Now, obviously people also can change to the worst. <laughs> Not <laughs> always they change in a good way. So we, we have to remember that too. Uh, but it's challenging structures is very important. I, I, I agree. When, when you look at what's happening in schools, for example, you know, there's a book that was authored by Ayal Nave and Sami Adwan, both... Uh, our professors in one in Tel Aviv University, one in Bethlehem University. 
And the book was about telling the Israeli-Palestinian history from both sides of the map and trying to get Palestinians to know what Israelis think about the history and the same vice versa. And it was banned in both Israeli and Palestinian schools by ministries of education. Actually, <laughs> teachers who tried to teach it were summoned and were told they'll get fired if they keep teaching these books. Do you remember the title? Uh, it's, uh, well, they have multiple books that if you want to look the academic one, they have one for universities is mm -hmm. side by side. And I, I love their work. So they did it for children. They did it for different levels. And unfortunately, the system wouldn't allow it. And th that tells you a lot, the fact that our schools won't allow us to hear the other side because they know the moment we do, then these kids who are being brainwashed will not go out in the streets like happened in Jerusalem recently to scream death to Arabs. They're not going to do that if they are taught not only their point of view. And the same with Palestinian kids who only know the Palestinian story. So that's, that needs to change. So what do you do when systems are not changing? What do you do when governments are not willing to change? I think you, you have to go toward individuals who hopefully would be able to push that system to change. And I'll give you one example. I used to be the chairman for an organization called the Briefed Families Forum, Parent Circle which is an organization that brings Israeli and Palestinian families who lost family members together um, in the conflict together. And then I joined an organization called Combatants for Peace, which is former people who fought against each other um, who are now doing it, working together without the guns. An amazing, amazing group. Um, and those two organizations send people to schools, both in Israel and in the West Bank, in East Jerusalem, and they send them together, an Israeli and a Palestinian, usually to have conversation with kids, with high school kids in most cases. And it's the first time these kids have ever met somebody from the other side. And to me, it's if the school won't change the system, then you have to find ways around the system. It's not easy. It's very hard. It's costly but it's our only option when the structure is so set in stone that you know the Minister of Education isn't gonna allow that kind of change, then we push it through other ways. And in one year, you know, I know the Pan Circle numbers used to have uh, over a thousand of those meetings in Israeli, um, in Israeli and Palestinian schools. So that's one example of how you can beat the system because it's hard to change that structure. You can go for legal aspect, you can go to court and that's important, but sometimes you have to find around a way to, to get around the, the system that tells you you can't push for a change. Thank you, that was great. Um, and that brings me to uh, my final kind of question because if you, if you, let's say, meet your old self, what would you tell yourself when you started um, working uh, on these issues? What piece of advice would you have given yourself then? Wow, that's a good, I haven't thought of that. So I'll need a, I'll need a second <laughs> to, to think about it. Um, well, there are moments that you feel very much in despair. There are moments you feel very much hopeless, like, you know, recently with 
with the Gaza, with the Gaza bombings. And I would tell myself not to, not to, not to give up, not to feel that despair, not to let those moments dominate because there are good things happening. Um, so that would be the, the first thing that I can think about is don't let those things um, distract you. So I would remind myself to not be distracted. Maybe knowing now what I know about the last 20 years of my life, I would say uh, uh, where to focus my, uh, my work more. I I'm very scattered kind of person. So, um, so I would try to tell myself to be a bit more focused maybe. <laughs> um, but also I, I think, you know, it took me many years to be more patient, to be able to, to hear things that can be really, really upsetting and to, you know, sometimes I still fail at it, but not to get upset. And that takes, takes a lot of practice. Mm -hmm. And I would tell myself uh, that's what to do. And I learned it from, from an amazing guy named Daryl Davis, who's a, and a black activist here in the in the United States who who told me how when he was meeting with Klux Klan the Ku Klux Klan uh, people as a black guy who was meeting with them and they would he's trying to convince them that that's not the way hate isn't the way and he said they would tell him things that were awful like you know that black people brains are smaller than white people brains you know you all live on welfare you know and they'll go on and on telling him these awful awful things and I asked him how he would listen to all of that and stay so calm and his answer was look just because people believe in wrong things doesn't mean I need to react to it I know my brain isn't smaller than their brain I never lived on welfare anyway this you know and I'll tell them eventually that but why would I get angry this is this is a misinformation they were fed this is the ignorance that they ended up having because they never got to meet somebody to tell them otherwise. So I just let them say everything they have to say and then I'll try to let them for the first time hear what they never heard before. And by listening to people first, they are more likely, even when they say racist things, even when they say awful things, by listening to them despite that, they are more likely to listen to you. And it's something I still try to practice. I still try to, to learn and grow in. And every now and then I succeed. Too many times I still fail at it. Yeah, I think I had similar, like a moment of despair, you know, well, four years of them <laughs> under Trump. Because I was like, there's nothing we can do. You know, it just seems so hopeless. Uh, but then, of course, I was proven wrong, right? Um, and I think that's a great advice to kind of not let that frustration take over you and control you. But I also think I'm always jealous, you know, of, you know, people who never experienced structural 
violence, you know, racial, ethnic violence. So my husband is white American and he can sleep soundly at night, right? But for me, for me, it's harder, right? I have to watch the news. I'm always keeping up with what's happening. And I do believe that trauma is passed on like in generations. Yeah. And I think studies have been done on the Holocaust, right? Yeah. How that um, it does transfer from you know generational trauma is a thing so i feel like it's it's also more challenging for but you know i look at it a bit differently i agree with you and there are moments i'm like man if i wasn't so screwed up and we are all screwed <laughs> up because if you grow up with so much trauma you you're not <laughs> the same and i'm lucky because in the states i was able to get counseling which my family living in jerusalem don't have that luxury of being able to get help. Uh, mm -hmm. But then I'm very grateful for being who I am today because I ended up working in Afghanistan. I ended up working in Syria, being in a places where it's terrifying. And I wasn't as afraid because I'm used to it. So the sound, the, the potential, when, when I was in, in Afghanistan, there were, you know, we'd go to places and somebody would say, oh, somebody blew up himself here just last week. And as terrifying as that obviously is, but coming from a place where I'm like, ah, I'm used to that kind of stuff. It's nothing new for me. Gave me the ability to work in those places and be effective and also to relate to so many people that the unfortunate truth is there are more people who have experiences similar to yours and mine than to your white husband. And <laughs> I can relate to those people. I worked in Latin America, I worked in Colombia, I worked in Chile, I worked in... And when I meet disadvantaged people, people who are oppressed and I say my story, suddenly we have this fondness with each other. We relate, we understand, and I can do work with them because it creates this trust that I wouldn't have had if I didn't go through everything I went through. As, as awful as you know those things are, it actually has given me you know, that trauma has given me the ability to relate to other people who have trauma. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, crazy ways, I'm grateful for that. Mm -hmm. That's, um, that's a great way to put it. And I, I'm also always amazed by how much joy people can have, like, despite everything, we still are happy, we have party, you know, like, there's some sense of um, the sense of humor even about what's happening like on social media they're arresting uh, brooms and they're arresting you know <laughs> and we're making fun of it and that <laughs> you know I'm very proud being from Jerusalem because we are such a stubborn people difficult people <laughs> but then there is this what Mahmoud Darwish said is there's this will will for life that feeling yeah. there's something to live for uh, and and you can feel it uh, that uh, that poem where he says it's the one hour even of sun in prison that makes you want to live and I remember in the second intifada going to Ramallah to meet my cousin so we can have a party and it was a curfew and I got shot at going to my cousin's house so I can like party with my cousins <laughs> and thinking like I could have been killed and yet I'm happy I did it and that that kind of that kind of spirit, you see people like 14 year olds being arrested by soldiers and the moment they see the camera, they smile. Mm -hmm. And that smile actually does give me hope. It's the humor we have. We make jokes of 
of of everything the whole the whole issues we make jokes about being in prison you make jokes about soldiers you make jokes about even being beaten up we we kind of lighten things up and that's a form of resistance it's a form of saying i will not allow this to beat me down i will still stand up and that's that's so uplifting for me and it's uh, it makes me so proud of uh, of our people being able despite all of that to still have that smile and i think we always say right yeah that's true <laughs> i don't know I, i don't know you translate the worst things in life can make you laugh i don't know <laughs> it's so bad there is nothing else to do about them i don't know. that's my uh, interpretation of it but yeah i thought that was a fascinating thing that it is a form of resistance and i think um that's a great point to end on this uh, was a great great conversation i wish i could i mean i could talk to you for three hours or more um but for the purposes of the podcast i want to you know to, to make it more accessible i want to say thank you very much aziz for um, agreeing to talk to me and for um your amazing work the work that you're doing we all appreciate it at least i do <laughs> um thank and you. i think it's very important um that you keep talking about it and keep sharing your experience with us can can i just do a quick plug if you want to anybody learn more about my work go to my website aziz abusera at azizabusera.com and um, please read my books i think they are good especially (laughs) if you like both peace and travel my last book is called the crossing boundaries a traveler's guide world peace and i promise it has tons of fun stories but also tips of how to travel and try to make a change while you are traveling yes everyone add this to your summer reading list um so thank you again aziz thank you very much um i will definitely share the books with my students and um, thank you they will read it um have a fantastic Uh, rest of your day I guess it's late afternoon now our time yep <laughs> um, and hopefully we'll talk to you soon all right talk to you soon thank you